Well, hey, so good to see all of you. Um, my name is Josh White. I'm the lead pastor here at Door of Hope. If you're visiting, we're glad that you're here. Um, yeah, just to say that, you know, Door of Hope, one of the things that sort of pushed Darcy and I to step out and leave the church that we were a part of on the west side was actually involvement. I was preaching at Portland Rescue Mission probably um, once a month. And uh, um, it was the best, that's the best place to learn to preach because they are not impressed. And uh, <laughs> I remember like one time I had, to, you guys ever seen Holy Grail with Monty Python? And the, you know, John Cleese is the Frenchman. I, I had a guy in the front row the whole time I preached and he literally just kept going like this. Like while I was preaching and I was, I, but I, I, I don't know why, but I've just found it so amusing. I was like, I was grateful for it. It was good. And, <laughs> but I, it is a beautiful ministry and obviously homelessness is not going anywhere um, in Portland. Uh, and, you know, we all have our opinions. Uh, Door of Hope is not a place to get into the politics of things. Uh, these are complicated issues. Uh, whether, whether we agree or disagree with uh, our mayor's um, policy of allowing people to camp wherever, uh, the fact is, is that people are hurting. And we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to be a reflection of his graciousness. And I'm convinced that when Jesus said, follow me, um, he, didn't, he didn't say he was going to lead us out of the difficulties or challenges of life. In fact, I, I think if Jesus was to take you on a walk to the places he was most interested in, it would be all the places that most of us would try to avoid because he is about seeking and pursuing that which is lost. Uh, and that's what we're supposed to be conduits of as a church. With that being said, we're gonna take a break from Romans um, for the, just the, probably the rest, of, uh, the rest of the summer, probably the next four, four weeks at least. Um, and I'm gonna be kind of um, establishing uh, sort of what are the essential realities of what it is that we are as a church because COVID has done something that, is, that, is, that we can't ignore. Before COVID hit, our last Sunday, before everything shut down, we, were, we had 1,400 adults in here. And us, like most churches, a year out of church has been a reckoning for the church everywhere. Uh, it's been a shaking in which many people came to the conclusion that we don't need church to love Jesus, especially with online presence. And, and I mean, we can, we can watch anyone we want. And it's true. If the church's primary goal is to teach people how to be self-fulfilled individuals, then there's absolutely no reason that we gather. You can watch whoever you wanted from home, from the comfort of your home. But if the purpose of the church is to actually not to come and hear the communicator communicate. I like what P.T. Forsyth said. He said, he said the church um, needs preachers that aren't following in the steps of the Greek order, but in the steps of the Hebrew prophet. For the Greek order brings inspiration, but the Hebrew prophet brings revelation. And I think what we need to understand is that our responsibility is not, you're not coming to hear me teach. Uh, you're coming to gather together with me as one of you around the living Christ, that we're to make Jesus known, that we're to be a reflection of his love. Um, and we want that to be the central thrust of what we do, that we believe that the church and specifically our gathering on Sundays is a way that we witness to the neighborhood, that we witness to the city, that there is a God and that he loves and that he is pursuing that which is broken. And we are a broken people who are being healed by Jesus's presence in our lives. And we are honest about our own brokenness and we are inviting people to come in and experience the transformation of a Jesus who meets us, who said, when two or more gather in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. So we're not here to learn about Jesus. We're here to meet with the living Christ. I think that's super important. Having said that, when Door of Hope began, my favorite season of the church was right before we hired Tim Mackey. I mean, I, having Tim was amazing because he's such a dear friend and he's an incredible teacher, obviously. Um, but there was a, a, a real excitement um, around the season. We hit about 800 people and we were a single service on Sunday night and it was just packed. We didn't know what we were doing. People were coming to faith in droves. I mean, literally hundreds of baptisms in the first few years. And 
people were inviting their friends. There were probably only three or four people with silver hair in the entire church and they were just parents of someone. And then everybody's parents started eventually coming in and their kids were like, we don't wanna go anymore now that our parents are here. So now I have all the parents. No, I'm just joking, that's not the reality. But, uh, uh, but, but the fact is there was this incredible momentum and it was all driven by this real belief that we just wanna meet with Jesus and we want to share Jesus in the city of Portland and we were doing it. And I think that this is a season where that's happening again. I see a whole new movement, of, a whole new wave of young people coming. Um, and there's just a lot of excitement and, and, and momentum. And we're actually, I am grateful that there was a shaking um, because I'm not interested in building a ministry around celebrity personalities. What I'm interested in is being a part of a community in which we are together confessing our need for Christ and one another and bringing that love into the city that we exist for the good of those outside of these walls. Um, and so that's why you're hearing from Ian. You're going to be hearing from John C. We want to raise up leaders. I think the age of the megachurch is over. Um, it's going to linger, but I, I, I don't think it's the path forward. I think that what we need is to be planting lots of churches where in various neighborhoods where people can be known and gather. I, I, you know, we Lots of people have attempted like house church movements. I think there's some things that are too small where it's like you're not known. I think that there's a beauty in re renovating these old buildings. Um, most of them only hold like two or 300 people. You know, we're blessed with one here that can seat 700. That's not normal throughout the city. But I would love to see Door of Hope churches planted all over the Portland area um, where there's communities super engaged in actually bringing the name of Christ out into the city for the purpose of its transformation. That we really believe that Jesus is in the business of seeking and saving that which is lost. Having said that, I want to take this next couple months to do something a little radical. And that is that starting on, um, on August 8th, we're gonna combine both services. It's gonna be pretty packed, but I want the energy of God's people together. We've gotta work through our like PTSD of gathering again. Uh, I mean, there is, and I understand some of you are feeling that like, no, no, I like, the, I like it a lot. It's so much nicer with space. We, we gotta get comfortable sitting by each other again. We gotta be comfortable shaking hands again. And I want us to focus on what it means to be a family, what it means to be the family of God. And so, so it will be full. We probably won't be able to keep it at a single morning service for long, but I, I think it will be awesome for a season for us just to all be together. So we're going to move this service to 10 a.m. Um, so, so if you like coming at 11, now you're going to come at 10. And if you were the person like coming at nine, now you're going to come at 10. So, um, and, but the other thing is that we're going to take Sundays and we're going to actually start providing, um, we're going to provide, start providing classes midday. And my goal is to actually start a series. Um, not only are we going to be launching Alpha and um, we'll probably do a beta run in this fall. And we'll be explaining what that is, uh, which is a, a really awesome evangelistic structure um, that we're going to be kind of taking that structure and applying it through a door of hope lens. Um, and I'm really excited about it. Pip's kind of heading that up. Um, but I'm gonna do a, a series of classes called Foundations. And this is really around the questions that have come out of the staff and the elders of what is our elder, what, excuse me, what is our, our um, process for sanctification? What's our process for, what does it mean to grow into maturity? Um, and I think that I would argue that our sanctification actually flows out of witness. I would argue that witness is sanctification because it is the moment that you begin to live outwardly for Jesus that you find yourself excited about growing in Jesus. I think the church has turned in upon itself and has put all of the focus on self-actualization, which is the, that is, that's the market of the world. The self-help industry is an $11.5 billion industry, and it is a never-ending cesspool of, of narcissistic turn inward, how do I find my best me now? This is, this is not what the church is in the business of. In fact, the, the, the church is in the opposite businesses, which is Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. It's not self-actualization, it's total surrender. And total surrender is a much happier place actually than self-analysis because the analysis of one's own ego is the best way to paralyze yourself and find yourself shrinking into a diminutive size because how much larger, Chesterton said, would our world be if we were smaller in it? So 
I want to take these classes and really begin to explore what does it look like to actually live out our faith. We're gonna talk about doctrinal issues. We'll talk about difficult things. And those classes will be probably 35, 40 minutes in content and then just an hour of, of question Q&A. So it's gonna be a time where you can ask questions of me or whoever's teaching. And um, I just want us to get on the same page theologically. I want you to know what it is you're committing to. Because I think Door of Hope often has this kind of, because we're such an evangelistic church, because we're such a cross-centered church, we draw from lots of streams. We draw a lot of people that are kind of, they're, they're just trying to figure out what they believe. Um, and so it, it leads to a whole bunch of ideas that may or may not be compatible uh, with the gospel as is revealed in the scriptures. So that's, that's my hope. So this is why we're going to do this. And we want to, we want to continue to push Redbird as the evening service. I want that to grow and flourish. Ian is one of those pastors that we want to see um, leading a church. And, uh, and, you know, God willing, if that's where God's leading in, we want to be supportive of that because I don't want to build something around myself. I want to be a conduit of God's grace in as many lives as possible but that means also giving away ministry as much as possible and raising up people and being fully invested and engaged in you. So having said that, where we're gonna begin today is what I believe is the great foundation that has been revealed to be missing over the last year in the church often. And, and I'm gonna focus a little bit on, on, uh, on myself as a preacher and one of the challenges, because as the, as the leader goes, so, so goes the sheep. And I think that this is, the, this is the reality, is that we are the products of an entertainment culture. Uh, and the church has spent, since the Jesus movement, trying to separate itself from the world, but at the exact same time, aping and mimicking all of its ways. And so that the church is, instead of being driven around what does it look like for God's people to gather around the living Christ and live in this radical vulnerability, um, living and loving uh, each other well, moving out into the world to be conduits or witnesses to Christ's kingdom. Instead, what we've done is we've elevated uh, the, the lead pastor into sort of this, it's like the the alternative to our television stars or our rock stars. We want people, we're looking for people with tremendous charisma. We're looking for intellectual prowess. We're looking for strong, firm leadership abilities, people that can communicate with authority. And all the while, the things that often are, are tolerated in the pulpit, because it's tolerated in our culture, are things like pride. Why do we allow pride to go unchecked. You should expect humility from your leaders. If I'm not exercising humility, then I need to repent of that and confess that. I think that, that we, we want domineering, strong personalities that will follow, but I cannot tell you how many powerful church leaders I have met that had from my interactions with them, no love. <laughs> Very little interest in getting their hands dirty amongst the people. They felt their responsibility is to pray and study. And it didn't, that meant they didn't have to actually be nice or really care or love. That is not what I see in the New Testament. You can take Acts chapter 6 and say, but that's what the apostles agreed on. Hey, Acts is a, is a history. It is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. And we don't even know that that was a Holy Spirit-led decision. And even if it was, I'm sure it wasn't meant to be a, a, a description of that the apostles never needed to mingle with the people again. Um, because I think that's how we end up with heresy. I think that's how we end up with duplicity. I think it's how we end up with leader after leader falling, is that they isolate themselves, which isolation is the devil's playground. And there's no accountability. There's no one speaking into their lives. And what it creates is a culture of coldness in the pew. If the heart of the pastor is smaller than their brains, and it is true physically, but it should not be spiritually, uh, it's like we, we elevate the, the, the mind over the heart. And as believers, it is heart and mind together. We are, we are a thinking people, but that thought is meant to be drawn down into the essence of who we are, the soul of who we are. And it is meant to be a picture of surrender to a lost world. So we have to begin with love. Jesus himself said, 
In John chapter 13, he said, listen to his disciples. The world will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. That witness actually begins in how well we love each other here. That actually the only tangible evidence that you and I have had our lives transformed by the gospel is not our ability to recite scripture. It's not our, our discipline of prayer. It's not our, our attendance record. It's not how you serve. It's not how you give of your resources. It is all of it is supposed to flow out of the life-changing reality of Christ. And I think that it is time that the church is experiencing a reckoning right now. And I think that we have to ask ourselves individually, corporately, are we representing the love of Christ? Do people feel loved when they come in this place? And if they don't, then we have to begin with the question of, do we know how loved we are? Because you will not be a conduit of the love of Christ if you don't believe that Christ actually loves you. You will not be a conduit of the love of Christ unless you have been born again because the kind of love that I am talking about is not the love defined by the world but the love that is defined by the cross of Calvary which is a sacrificial, self-giving love. And so before we can jump into 1 Corinthians 13, I wanna just share with you three things. When I talk about the love of God, I always utilize this sort of, this sort of framework. That number one, the love of God is elective. When I say that God's love is elective, what I mean is that God in his sovereign freedom chooses to love sinners in their sin. That is the whole picture of the incarnation. God has constantly, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is consistently walking to pursuing broken humanity. He is not avoiding, you know, it says that God, in God is no darkness at all, that separation from sin doesn't mean that God actually avoids us. He's constantly putting himself into direct contact with the broken world. And we have to recognize that Jesus himself, we are told that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So when we talk about God's elective love, we are talking about God's willingness to enter into the human dilemma because it is his nature to love. That it means that he in his freedom chooses to love us and it's, un, it's an unmotivated love. Or we should say better yet, a love that is motivated from within, not from without. It's why it says in 1 John 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. For the whole world. Paul says, there is one thing that motivates me. The love of Christ compels me. His love is elective. He loves us because it's his nature of his activity. It's the activity of his nature. This is the, a, a God who is never reluctant to love us as we are, but we may be reluctant to come to him because we misunderstand his heart toward us. That's why every week I tell you guys again and again that on your worst stinking day, Jesus is crazy about you. And the deepest need of the human heart is to know that they belong. It's a longing to come home. It's a longing to be in a place where I am known. I know, guys, I grew up in a crazy broken family. I abandoned by my dad. I had crummy stepdads. I know what it's like to wrestle with what it means to be loved. I know what it's like to long to belong somewhere. I also know what it's like to have a tremendous amount of self-hatred, something that I have to continually fight even as a preacher and as a follower of Jesus, that even though I tell you every week that on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you, I too, just like many of you, go, but can he really love me? If God knew what was going on in my heart and my mind, he would not love me. That's the thing he does know. It says that while we were yet enemies of Christ, when we were still sinners, dead in our sin, Jesus Christ died for us. And I think that that's the picture. That's why the cross has to remain central because it gives us a definition of what this elective love looks like. It's not God choosing you over another. It's God choosing to love broken people in their sin. Secondly, God's love is also a purifying love. And this is a hard one for us. He may be willing to meet us in our sin and he loves us. And as Luther said, Jesus saved me from sin. Why didn't he save me from sinning? We continue to deal and wrestle with our brokenness. And that's why I continually say that the church must function like an AA meeting where our overcoming of the struggle is through our continual confession of its reality. Because confess sin is the very place where Jesus in his love meets us. It's a beautiful reality. 
But the purifying love of God is something that we also must understand. And that purifying love of God means that although he's willing to meet us in our sin, he is not content to leave us there. His love is a holy love. There's a severity in God's love. You ever read the Chronicles of Narnia when, when Lucy asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan, who is a picture of Christ, is, um, is, is good? Oh no, she says, is, is Aslan safe? And he goes, Aslan's safe. He is good, but he is not safe. One of the things that we are declared about scripture is that God is a consuming fire, that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's love burns so fiercely that it will burn the, the, the beloved clean of everything that is unlovely within us. But we have to be willing to surrender to that love and that love must do, it's, and Jesus accomplishes that by his spirit in our lives, is there's a continual purging process of existence. It's, it's why the love of God is also connected to the light of God. That light continually reveals that which is within us. That's why the longer you walk with Christ, you don't see yourself as, as less broken. The more I walk with Christ, the longer I walk with Christ, the more sinful I actually see myself. Things that I didn't even know were problems, he continually, I'm like, Yes, I mean, we're all looking for that point where we can say, I have arrived. And on this side of eternity, it's not gonna happen. Jesus has arrived and it is his life in us as we daily surrender to him. His purifying love is that humbling reality of his, his fierce demand to be Lord. Nothing is more painful than giving up control. Nothing is more painful than dying to dreams. You know how many times if I was to follow my own desires, my own hopes, my own ambitions, I would have walked away from Door of Hope if I allowed those selfish impulses to control? But the Lord's like, are, are we done, Josh? Are you gonna keep fighting me on this? And it, and it goes to this painful process. It's like, it, that's why I like to say, I'm stumbling toward eternity. It's like there's, Jesus says, I'm the way, and there means there's one way to go, but there's a thousand ways to get off track. And I get off track and then I'm picked back up and I'm put back on the way. And this is why we need one another. And this is why the purifying love of God is a challenging reality for the church that has created this celebrity culture that continually is presenting to the world an ideal that we can't keep. When in actuality, what we should be doing is allowing the love of God to purify us by our continual confession of our brokenness to one another. If people actually confess their sin in a safe place like they do in AA, we actually would not have as many leaders falling. Because if they would have confessed way earlier in the game, instead of waiting to get caught for a duplicitous life, we wouldn't be living with the constant shame in the, in the endless accusations that Christians are the biggest hypocrites in the world. And what we should say is, we are the biggest sinners in the world. That's what makes us saints is that we actually recognize that without Jesus we're lost. But instead we pretend to be something that we're not capable of being. Only Christ can be that in us as we surrender to him. His love is purifying and that purifying love is a painful process that will continue until we receive that new life, that new existence, that new name in, in that future life to come. It is the hope of an eternity with the living Christ uh, that, that brings the transformation. Next, I would just simply say this, that finally his love is creative. God doesn't just save. We don't just put our faith in Christ and he says, great, you saved. Um, he actually produces in us what we are not capable of producing in ourselves. This is why it says in Romans 5, that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the love that God loves us with is revealed as we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit becomes a revealer of this incredible love that God has toward us. He's always previous. And when we came to God, just know that you were dead and blind. We can't respond to the gospel until the, the Spirit opens up our eyes enough to see the yes that God has declared over us. The question is, is will we say yes to that yes? 
And when we say yes to God's yes and we say Jesus is Lord, we are inviting his spirit into our lives. And that spirit pours out the love of God, letting us know that we are loved, but it also gives us the capacity now to enter into that same kind of reality by which Jesus makes himself known through us, in us and through us. The love of God is never given to us so that we can just bask in our own private glory. The Christian life is personal, yes, in that it's relational, but it is never private. It's never private. That's why I don't trust the mystics. I used to read them all the time. The Desert Fathers, Madame Guyon, uh, Teresa Villa's Interior Castle, St. John of the Cross. I'm like, fine, they have some interesting ideas, but I don't trust any Christian that thinks that following Jesus means an existence away from people. I think that's actually antithetical to the gospel. And I think that we are giving way too much time and attention once again to many of those that propagated ideas that were driven often by heresy because they were spending so much time alone. And I, I would argue this, that I would go as far as to say, we should not trust any pastor that does not live life with people, ever. <laughs> I, think it's the most, I think it's one of the things that damages the church more than anything. So looking at 1 Corinthians 13, I just wanna look at the first, first like eight verses, it's just this. The first thing we have to say is that love matters supremely. Paul, in the middle of this letter to the Corinthians who are marked by, you know, they have spiritual pride. They think that they're unique in their giftings. There's, there's infighting. There's all sorts, of, all sorts of sin that's at play, sexual sin that's being undealt with. But Paul says, listen, I'm telling you all these things that you need to correct, but this is where it has to be anchored. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Uh, just notice the intensity of what is being said here. Because, <laughs> excuse me, here he is saying something that is so profound. Three things he says, without love, I say nothing. Without love, I am nothing. Without love, I gain nothing. I mean, when we look at this, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you know. Once had a pastor that had memorized most of the New Testament working for me. But he was not giving himself to the people of the church. He wasn't sadly giving himself to his wife. He ended up being let go. He was one of the most gifted people I've ever had work for me. And, and a couple years later, he blows up his marriage through, through an affair and actually a history of sexual sin. And I think about this, like he was a guy who could speak with such authority, so much knowledge, and yet the love that was lacking meant that everything that he thought and said, literally, he was saying nothing. And I think that this is, this is a problem because we elevate things that are said and often the character behind the words spoken, uh, there, is a, there is a lack of, of honesty and integrity. And it's not just the preacher that does it. We do it all the time. We are trained in our world to wear masks. That's why a year of mass shouldn't be that weird in a culture that is masterful at hiding the reality of who we are and what we do. And I think that this is a, this is a picture of like, if we don't have genuine love for people, then why would anyone wanna follow Jesus? Like, because you can speak scripture over their lives? Like, if you don't actually care about the person you're sharing with, why would they, why would they want what you're offering? You actually have to be a, a living symbol we ourselves are, we are secondary light. We reflect the light of the sun. As we experience the love of God, it is meant to be given away. It's never meant to be private. It is meant to be given away. And I think that, that this is a, a picture that we have to understand. When we, without, without love, I say nothing. Notice, he's like, you can be marked by supernatural gifts, prophetic powers, understand all mysteries. I mean, it's amazing. So many authors I love that are, have almost encyclopedic knowledge bases. 
But often when I read about the lives of those authors, they're kind of weirdos and not very pleasant to be around. Uh, None of that matters if it isn't actually leading us into deeper relationship. Do you understand that the love that we're talking about is a love that is manifested from a triune God? The reason that we hold to the vision that God is one God revealed in three persons is that his oneness flows out of this continual love relationship. We always say that God is within himself a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a community. God is a community within himself. There is, he is a relational God. And when we are told that we are made in the image of God, it means supremely that we were made for a relationship. Sin, by its very definition, is a rebellion against God's rule and a rejection of his love that actually destroys relationship toward God, toward others, and ultimately clouds our ability to even know ourselves. Now humanity is obsessed with self-discovery and maybe we'll get to loving others and we probably won't even consider God because we're told in the world that we live that the only God that actually is is the God within yourself. And it's tapping into that potential. But what a foolish endeavor. For the restoration of relationship is this, is that it leads us into a reality by which we can now the things that God gives to the church are never meant to, to um, impress or wow people. The gifts that God has given us as a community is so that we can actually be conduits of that love. Paul said, I did not come to you with eloquence of words. I came to you in a demonstration of power and the spirit. He said, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of, of love and of power and of self-control. In other words, nothing compels the world to follow Jesus if it is not backed up by the understanding that I am loved by God and God wants to love the world through me. Without love, I gain nothing. I mean, it's fascinating that you can, we can feel good about the things we do and often the things that we do to serve God are ways that we try to quiet our guilty conscience for the ways that we lack in our ability to love people well. If I can't love well, you hear about stories of a parent that doesn't know how to, you ever see that, that uh, um, what was that, was it called Toy? Um, it was with Richard Pryor and, and uh, um, Jackie Gleason and he's like a super rich, I think it's called The Toy. Um, is that right? I don't remember. Uh, anyway, I remember seeing it in the theaters when I was a kid and, and, and Richard Pryor is hired by Jackie Gleason to play with this kid because Gleason's rich and he doesn't, have, and, he's, and he's a businessman, he doesn't have time for his kid. And the only way he ever knows what to do when his kid is, you know, seeming unruly is just give him things, buy him things, buy him stuff. But that can never replace love. It can't. The whole point of that picture is that he realizes he isn't, he, he's never loved his son well. And I think that that's, a, that's a, a powerful reminder. You can have faith, you can have knowledge, you can remove mountains, you can, you, if you have not love, you are nothing. If I give all that I have, if I, my body is burned at the stake, if I didn't love, it doesn't mean anything. This is why Jesus' words are so terrifying in Matthew 7 when he says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this or that in your name? And he will say what? Away from me, I never knew you. Relationship and agape love, It matters. It matters a lot. Love also conquers. And here we have love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is a powerful description of love because love, first of all, the first two declarations, really um, love is patient and kind, this introduces the theme. Love is capable, essentially, of great restraint and it, is, it has the ability to exercise goodness. These two realities, so the first two statements here establish the theme. And then he's going to move into how love actually exposes the darkness within ourselves, the darkness in others, and even the perceived darkness we have around God himself. If you look 
at this idea of, if you think of patience and kindness as the, as the theme of what God's love does, then love and darkness within ourselves, love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way. We have to remember that the divine love works inward on our own hearts as a revealer of the darkness that we will continually deal with. By using a series of negatives one in front of each verb, Paul emphasizes that an essential part of true Christ-like love is to recognize the darkness within us. It's what keeps us humble. It's, what, it's, it's, it's how we actually begin to have victory over areas in our lives because it allow, that light shines. It gives us the ability to renounce and to, and, to, and to confess because we can confess envy now because this love is content with what it has. We can confess it. We're like, I don't need to be jealous of my friends. I don't need to be jealous of what this person has or what, gift, what gifts this person has. I am content with the belief that God on my worst day loves me. The divine love shines inward. We can overcome envy because love is content with what it has. We can overcome pride. Pride is an abomination to God and yet we let, we let that run unchecked in the church. It's, it's, it's an incredible indictment, and I think the church is paying for many of these things right now. Um, and I think it's good. I think that I call this a divine shaking, that, that COVID did not take God by surprise, and he has the ability to use everything to bring about his redemptive purposes in our lives. But we can overcome pride because love is humble, and it can say, I must decrease that he might increase. That's the most appropriate thing that that we can ever say when we enter into the world in which God has called us is like, why do we, why are we fearful of sharing Jesus with others? Why are we fearful of actually letting people know that we actually met someone that has saved us? The early church and, and I would say Christians that I have met that have blown me away the most are not only the ones who love the most powerfully, but they're the ones who literally act and believe in the fiber of their being that this Jesus is actually worth dying for. And I would simply ask you, would you die for your faith in Christ? Would you lay down your life for this? Because I think that we have an easy belief as in that says, this Jesus is here to make my dreams come true. But the Jesus of scripture says, will you follow me? Peter, are you gonna follow me? And he says, if you follow me, just know this, if the world hated me, it will hate you as well. Remember when they said, Lord, why must you drink the cup of suffering? He says, don't worry, you also will drink the cup of suffering. All of the disciples, the original apostles that followed Jesus, every single one of them with the exception of one was martyred for their faith. And the one who wasn't martyred was locked away on an island by himself. So, I mean, the history of the church is marked by the blood of martyrs, but that's not, I mean, our 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 great challenges. Uh, I don't want to talk about Jesus because it's kind of rude and it's a little offensive and off-putting. Um, and so then we come up with new vocabulary. We try to, we think we're not going to offend people if we call ourselves a Christ follower when a non-believer just goes, what do you mean, a Christian? We like, we, we use new lingo. We're like, we're not going to use evangelical because that's been sabotaged by the political. Why would we allow anyone to steal the very word that means good news? <laughs> like, so we're just we're, we're apologetic about the wrong things what we should be apologizing to is to Jesus for being ashamed of him and we're like well I'm embarrassed of what the church has done in the name of Christ hey all you can do is do what's right love actually helps us overcome those things it's pride that keeps us from sharing from witnessing we don't want to look dumb that's our great persecution we don't want to look dumb and I promise you, the way to look dumb is to try to dumb down the gospel so it's less offensive, so that it's more palatable for modern sensibilities. Because all that does is it creates a powerless gospel in your own making. And I think that this is, that is not helpful either. We can overcome rudeness and brashness because this love is considerate. By this, I mean not overly self-conscious, but aware of its surroundings. I, I don't have to be rude or brash. Love actually makes me outward focus. It makes me aware of the people around me. It helps me to see the homeless person as an image bearer of Christ who is an object of his love rather than a person 
living in a tent surrounded by trash. Listen, everything we hold on to in this world is trash, ultimately. We don't get a, Stephen King, after he had a near-death experience, said, the thing that has struck me the most as I came close to death was that I don't get to take anything with me. It's all going to disappear. And I think that we still, we, we are often, uh, we're, we're one degree removed from our brothers and sisters around us. We all have the same problems. We are called to be conduits of God's love, to experience his grace, but we often are so busy chasing after the things of this world that do not ultimately satisfy us and leave us emptier than we were before we started that we, we have to come back to this place where it is an outward focus. We can overcome self-focus because this love does not insist on its own way. It surrenders to its source. I think it's also important that Paul here mentions three ways in which the darkness that we see in others um, it is overcome by love. Notice he says it's not irritable, resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I, I think that, that here he mentions the ways that we can focus on the weaknesses and the sins of those around us. Not only does the love shine inward on, into our own lives to, to help kind of begin to temper the natural tendency to exalt self. And as we surrender to Christ, he then begins to give us the ability to love people in spite of the fact that they are also broken, sinful people. It's, it gives us the ability to do what Eugene Peterson said. We won't be surprised when people sin because we remember that they're sinners. And, and first of all, look at irritation. Love is not irritable. Irritation. There are people, some people who simply provoke us. They irritate us. I had a girlfriend once break up with me and I felt like it was, uh, I had many girlfriends break up with me. Uh, and and there was one that kind of spoke the prophetic word over me my sophomore year in high school. Her name was Carla. And she, sa she said, I want to break up with you. And honestly, going out in 10th grade for me was, I went to like a movie and held hands and made her listen to Prince Purple Rain with me. I mean, that was about it. Um, and, and she's like, I'm like, why do you want to break up with me? You bug me. Darcy actually still likes... She still likes to say that to me. She goes, she goes, hey. I'm like, what? She's like, you kind of bug me right now. I'm like, I know. I'm an irritable person. Uh, it's a, I'm not irritable. I have a gift of making people irritated. Um, but I, I think that, that my, my wife, she loves me well because she's not afraid to tell me that I'm not being likable in a moment so that she does not get irritated. It's part of what it means to be an outward confessional community. If we could enter into conflict instantly, we would be far, you know, it's when we don't talk to people, when we don't love people well, is when we just let them irritate us because we've let stuff linger for so long that now even the way they eat their cereal bugs us. You ever got to that place where you're so mad at someone that now things that never bothered you before, you're like, I hate it. I hate the way he ties his shoes. Like what? Like, how is like, it's just like, that's our nature. It's like we hold grudges. The love of God breaks down those realities. It, 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 it tempers resentment. Paul refers to actual evil in others. It does not keep a record of the wrongs in those around us. It does not hold on to the failures of others. This should not be difficult when we see what God has forgiven us of. You know, I carried resentment toward my father for a long time for abandoning me as a, as a, as a one-year-old until God said, you have no right to lead a church when you refuse to forgive your father. How can you say you're forgiven and yet you refuse forgiveness? And I remember entering into my father's brokenness and God, the day that God broke my heart for my dad was the day I flew up to Alaska after his throat had ruptured and they told me he might not make it. And I walk in that room and he, he had been in, like, like incubated with a breathing tube down his throat. He, he looked, he smelled like death. Uh, he, I mean, I don't think he bathed probably in a month. Uh, he had been, he had drank so much that he was just, have you ever been around someone that like drank to the point where they've literally, they've bled out, he bled out. So he'd lost, he'd lost like three quarts of blood. He's, he's, he's gray. His skin is gray. His eyes are yellow from jaundice and he smells horrible. And they had just taken the tube out of his throat when I got there. And, he, and the first thing he's, um, 
he says to me, the first time ever, it was a compliment. Because when I saw him after I graduated from high school, the first thing he said to me was how ugly I was. But this time he said, you look good, son. This scratchy voice. And I said, you do not look good, dad, <laughs> at all. You look like, and you smell even worse. And I remember going out to the nurse. I'm like, I, I literally can't be in that room. Like you guys got to, somebody's got to go bathe them. Like we have to, we have to bathe them. And I go in and I'm like, dad, nurse is going to come in and take you in the shower and give you a shower. And he's like, I'm not letting any person. I'm like, what do you want? You want me to bathe you? Or do you want that woman to bathe you? And he's like, I'll take the lady. <laughs> and I'm like, that's right, you will. <laughs> but he goes, I have to go to the bathroom. And he gets up and he's so frail. It's like he had the, one of those like kind of rolling, he's on an IV and he's trying to walk and he's wearing a, he's wearing a gown and he's naked underneath it. And it's like open in the back. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's, it's like a little troll man. And I'm following him and he start and he, he can't walk and he falls backwards and I catch him in my arms and he's leaning, it's like, my dad is not like a hugger and, and he's like laying in my arms, like fully exposed. And he starts cussing, like, like blankety blank, blank. And I'm like, I'm like, dad, calm down. I've got you. It's okay. And he relaxed into my arms and he let me hold him up. And I could tell that it was, he hadn't been touched probably in a year. And just allowing me to hold him was like this healing moment where like, he is beloved. I can no longer hold resentment toward him. I have to see him the way that Jesus sees him. Some of you are holding on to resentments toward people, your parents, your spouse, your children, I don't know, but it's not of Jesus. It's not what God has called us to. He does not celebrate evil. Love focuses our attention and our attitude towards sin and wickedness in general. It's like we, the love of God burns fiercely against, against sin, not because he hates sinners, but he hates what, what, what robs him of people, which is sin itself. It's a purifying love. It doesn't celebrate evil. It's, 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 it's that schadenfreude. We don't take pleasure in people falling. We don't take pleasure in people hurting. We often seem to, I mean, if you follow Twitter what a toxic world we live in. I, it's amazing to me how many Christians in person are so kind and they are transformed into, into literally what the internet and what the social media calls trolls online. Like, isn't it weird how you have friends that on Facebook, they're like a completely different human being engaging. Like, I had no idea that you were a part of this strange movement of anger. Um, and it's like, it happens all the time and we're, we're not consistent and we need to know that we're not called to hold grudges. We are called to be conduits of forgiveness because it moves us into the love and the apparent darkness in God himself. Listen, the world is confused and it is scared because the days have been dark and the turmoil has been intense. We have racial unrest. We have, we have political unrest. We have incredible amounts of poverty in, in the homelessness problem in our city. Uh, we, have, we have tensions around how Christians are viewed right now because of its connection with a particular political party. All of these things, the only thing that can overcome those things is love. And it's the love that actually believes that God has not lost control. That love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It means that love pushes through because we know the end of the story, even though we don't know how long it's gonna to take to get there. We know that we can trust Jesus. We can't make sense of suffering. And I don't think we should try to offer people an explanation of why suffering exists. What we should be offering people is the solution to suffering, which is that Jesus never promised us a pain-free life, but he did promise to be with us in the midst of it. As Dorothy Sayers brilliantly said, and I quote her all the time because I love it so much, whatever game God is playing, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. I can trust in Jesus. The reason I believe in Jesus, why the gospel of grace is so compelling is because it shows us a God who is not willing to separate himself from the brokenness of humanity, but is willing to actually enter into it. That's why Hebrews refers to him as our sympathetic high priest. He understands us. 
He feels what we feel. He understands our pain. It's the beauty of the gospel. And that's why we can say that love is the only thing that lasts. In closing, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Listen, at the end of the day, when our works are tested by fire, when we stand before our God, the question isn't going to be, how many verses did you memorize? How professional were you in your prayer life? How much money did you give? All of those things, if they have not flown, come out. Those things are beautiful things. But if they are not compelled by, motivated by, and come out of the intimacy that you have with Christ and the reflection that you have of his love toward a lost world, they mean nothing. And what we have to understand is we're not saved by what we do, but what we do should reveal the fact that we have been saved. And so I'm just saying that this has got to be the foundation for Door of Hope moving forward. It can't be about intellect. It can't be about charisma. It can't be about cult of personality. It's got to be about a messy, broken group of people like you and like myself that's saying we were lost. We can't save ourselves. We trust in Jesus. He has revolutionized our life. We would die for this. And we want you to be a part of this beautiful reality by which God is reconciling the world to himself and he is doing it through you and I as his ambassadors. And we are ambassadors of reconciliation, which means we are ambassadors of love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for its ability to transform our lives. We do ask right now that you would change us, define us, speak to us, In this season, Lord, will we humble ourselves before you and recognize that we are lost without you. How desperately we need your grace. How desperately we need to know your goodness. Lord, your word says that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we declare again and again God, the creator of all that is, that we see in the world, though it is broken and fallen, that it is not what it once was. That sin entered in and created relational separation. But that God, you were not content to leave us in the mess that we made of your creation, but that you actually entered into the creation. That God became a man. Jesus, we look to you, the one who entered into the human predicament. You, just didn't, you didn't come to just identify with our humanity. You came to identify with our sin. And you created a way for us. Thank you that you do not need us, but you are not content to exist without us. And your word declares that whoever believes in you should not perish. That whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. We thank you that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. That all that needs to be done has already been done through your saving life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for what you did for us, Jesus. Thank you for the revelation of what love is. For there is no God behind the back of Christ. And in you, Jesus, you said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we turn to you our good shepherd, and we ask that you would be merciful, but that you also would burn us clean, and that you would inflame our hearts with a love that is infectious. May people know that we are your disciples. We pray this in your name. Amen.